Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Paul Haywood, the author and columnist. Football is in a state of flux. It raises difficult issues and stimulates uncomfortable debate. Don't know about you, but I found the atmosphere around Chelsea's game against Newcastle on Sunday thoroughly depressing. We'll look at that later. But first, let's focus on the bigger picture. Football is changing, perhaps faster than we realise. Now, Migs, you've written about the potential revival of the Super League idea. Has it ever gone away? No, uh, and I suppose that was almost indicated immediately by the belligerence of the three main Central European clubs behind it, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, in taking the court case to the uh, European Court of Justice. And I genuinely don't think it's an exaggeration to say that court case, which could be anything to... It, it could take between anything between six months or 18 months to be heard, if it's heard at all, will dictate the entire future of football. Because it comes down to whether... It will decide whether only UEFA or FIFA can organise or, or give sanction for competitions to be organised or whether clubs can organise their own competitions. But of course, what, what the latter actually means is these big European clubs basically want to create a Premier League style federation, a members association where they have, you know, where they are shareholders that really replaces UEFA as the power in the game. And I think that while, while there are absolutely fair discussions to be had over the state of football right now and UEFA's own inability to tackle some of these problems and, and their, their own contribution to some of these issues, the, 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 the kind of the principle behind UEFA is still right. I don't think a federation where some of the most powerful shareholders by influence are going to be people with the short-term interest of Florentino Perez or Andrea Agnelli is good for sport. I, I don't think these people have the best interest of sport in mind. But then, of course, some of that... I mean, even though it's, it, there's a bit of an irony here, given everything that we're talking about, everything we're going to talk about, even though Madrid are a fan-owned club, which means they're ring-fenced from the likes of Abramovich, the likes of Saudi Arabia, the problems their political structures have still produced someone in command like Florentino Perez. But all of this indicates 
a really problematic point of where we are in the game's history where a group of super clubs have grown to a certain size for different reasons that is essentially distorting the sport and has also had the effect where it's attract because of their sheer size and the political capital that affords them it's attracted huge geopolitical interests so to, to get to the point where we have Roman Abramovich wanting to buy Chelsea which is 19 years ago now and we have Saudi Arabia looking to buy Newcastle or Abu Dhabi looking to buy Manchester City because of what football represents and that has had an awful lot of fallout at the moment it's leading to existential questions over Chelsea Football Club and whether they can exist I think they will but there's still so many questions and uh, a lot else going on in the game and it just feels like I suppose the Chelsea situation sums up you mentioned the atmosphere at the game on Sunday it, it, it sums up how it feels like the game is currently at a point where all of these forces have combined so it no longer has control over its own future and I think given sports given football's importance that's um, a really worrying situation yeah certainly it's, it's ironic that we're having this type of conversation in a Champions League week you know a hugely successful competition which is you know, essentially the, the Super League clubs are looking to usurp it Paul you know what what do you think the, the future does look like are we are we sort of working towards almost a two tier game you've got that sort of global nfl type model you know with all the geopolitical and financial connotations that that, that will bring and maybe a more traditional domestic scene you know you think about it we're already seeing a shift in fans attitudes with support for for localized non league clubs for instance well, first of all, I think it would be a shock from everything I've seen and read if the European Court of Justice ruled in favour of these, I'll call them conspirators for once, want of a better word, you know, the three clubs still fighting this corner in, in support of a European Super League concept. If, if the verdict goes their way, clearly UEFA's jurisdiction will be in tatters and the European Super League idea will revive itself, will go through the same turmoil that we went through less than a year ago all over again. I mean, your bigger question, Mike, is leads me to think about the English Premier League's role in this because uh, the conspirators in Europe are saying that, well, if necessary, they could form a European Super League without English clubs. And the significance of what's happening at the moment, to my mind, is that the, the Premier League's business model is in bits. 10% of the Premier League club's have been affected by sanctions against uh, Russian oligarchs, Everton and Chelsea. The war in Ukraine has focused attention on Saudi Arabia's ownership of Newcastle. There's no legal impediment to that, but there's certainly an extra kind of moral scrutiny of that. So the, the, the wealth and the power of the Premier League is built on the idea that anything goes. It's an extreme laissez-faire model. There are virtually no barriers to entry. It's an unregulated model. And that is why, people shouldn't forget, that is why it's so successful and so powerful around the world. That's why the clubs are starting to dominate European competitions. So if you take that out for any reason, and certainly sanctions against two of the owners or sponsors of Premier League clubs is a fairly significant change in the culture, then the Premier League's position in European football suddenly looks a bit different. You know, everything is a little bit more unstable and uncertain. So I find it very interesting to look at the Premier League's potential relationship to any revival of the European Super League idea. Because do you expect, Megs, 
the Premier League clubs to retain the solidarity that that perhaps they well they were almost you know, pushed into in the in the first uh, round of um, negotiations. Probably yes, just because. Well, I completely agree with everything Paul said there, and I think it's probably worth a bigger discussion now about Richard Scudamore's role in all this. Given you know how he is, he's been seen as a hugely influential figure in now the history of sport and sports administration, usually in a positive sense. But now his whole quote unquote ownership neutral policy has had a lot of unintended effects. Oh, but let's be fair. There are effects that could have been predicted because you 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 could see the direction travel, and and, and there are questions about, of course, coming up on the likes of Hicks and Gillette, bought Liverpool. But I suppose right now, one effect of that approach has been that the Premier League is the global superpower. It's a it's a super league in its own right, and because and I think purely because of the money coming in and the last deals signed, it will maintain a solidarity. But I think that that that's why the potential of a new super league is interesting and why if the if the conspirators win at the ECJ or get, or get the result they want there, there could be greater repercussions just on that I mean from what I, I agree with Paul as well I do I think if the ECG, ECJ takes a political view on this there's no way that this case can even be heard because it's ultimately about the cultural importance of sport but if it takes a purely legal view then from what I've been told, it's at least a 50-50 chance. Hopefully, that will be weighted due to the politics. But the great, the greater issue now for the, I suppose, the European game and potentially in the long run, the Premier League is, is that a lot of mid-tier clubs in Europe or big clubs in small countries, at the very least, this idea is now appealing to them. So I suppose what what a new Super League. They say they're still... There was a lot of briefing in the last two weeks about what's actually happening and certainly, you know, a lot of talk around the Financial Times Business of Football Summit last Thursday, which is quite an interesting event in itself because of the amount of politics at it and the amount of edge and atmosphere in the room. But I think one of the visions they'd have is it would obviously be these big European clubs, but then uh, it would be a more central European Super League that would say, in theory, now, I'm not saying that Benfica and Ajax are interested right now. I don't know if they are. But a new Super League could be attractive to them because one of the issues these clubs have had is, even though they're huge historic clubs, but because they are wedded to the domestic leagues, they have small TV markets, which has meant they're limited in scope. So if they're suddenly in a Super League, that would see, and this is the whole thing about this, a lot, a lot, the rest of Europe, and particularly these European powers, when they look at state-owned clubs and when they look at the Premier League, they want to challenge that. They want their own version. So that's the kind of the, the, the driving motivation between any, any new Super League, that it would basically be a central, even though it would replace the Champions League in their minds, it would, as much as anything, be a challenge to the supremacy of the Premier League. Because you know, let's, let's take it as a case in point, Paul, PSG. You know, they were humiliated in the Champions League again last week. You know, the game against Bordeaux on Sunday... There were, you know, board resign banners. Messi and Neymar were being booed. Is that a, a, perhaps a tipping point that might reshape their stance on a Super League? Possibly. It's an interesting switch, drift by those supporters, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
PSG fans have, have bought in very enthusiastically to this kind of artificial paradise that's been created for them in, in Paris. And suddenly they don't like it. They don't like it on the back of, a, of an outcome, a capitulation in the Champions League, which, which really brought the whole project into dispute, not into disrepute, not for the first time, I should say. So if they're banning two of the world stars because they're that disaffected, it might suggest that people are starting to see through this whole culture, not just in, in England, but in, um, you know, in France as well, in Paris. You know, maybe people are looking at this construct, uh, this thing that's been sold to them as, 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 as the future, in which they're the legacy fans and the consumers, and all they have to do is sit there rattling their jewellery at the players. You know, if, if, if PSG fans are turning on their team... It's for football-related reasons, obviously, because of because of that dreadful capitulation in the Champions League, as I said. But maybe there's a, a, a wider disaffection creeping in. Maybe people, supporters across Europe, are starting to realise that the game has actually been hijacked. Yeah, we we've spoken on this show in the recent weeks about you know, fan issues, you know, golden shares. You've got one of the potential buyers of Chelsea, the property developer, Nick Candy, saying that he'll give a fan a seat on the board if he takes the club over. You know, it's it's difficult here because, you know, I don't want to question his motives, but is it pointless PR without giving the supporter base real power? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is... It's why this is another juncture moment for the game, really. Because suddenly, this, this, this Chelsea situation, even though it's, it's so grim for football, it sums up so many problems, but it's also an opportunity because suddenly it's a rare opening to do something we've talked about for so long and that a government-initiated review, as recently October suggested, which is at the very least, give fans a golden share. Now, so I, I, I was never as impressed with that review, as a lot of people see, I thought, I thought it was really superficial. It didn't even mention state ownership once, despite that being a huge issue in the game that, 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 we, saw, that we saw yesterday, came up again yesterday. And now we have an opportunity where, and this, this should be really hardwired into whoever comes in next, where the, and the Chelsea supporters' truth, trust have called for it, they've called for a golden share, which is quite, and a golden share, it's actually quite a small thing when you stand back and look at it. It's not, it's not it, it doesn't give you know, fans veto rights so much. It just basically protects the core principles of a club, which is where it plays, what what colours it plays in, the badge, the name, and and very kind of central things like that. And despite that, there's been almost total silence about this. I mean, I don't mean to pick on Tracy Crouch, but given the political capital she made out of that that review, given that it was you know she was the one entrusted with with, uh, with doing it, and given the political capital. Her, her party and the Tory government made it this because let's not forget the Super League was the top polling issue for, for the Tories over the entirety of 2021 and connected to that I mean after the Super League they immediately said we will do this review and despite it's been total silence what, why isn't Tracy Crouch in the media about this now I, I, I raised this the other day on Twitter and in a piece that I did for the Independent because people in football and politics had been, put, had been putting to me, why is the Tory government and specifically Crouch quiet on this? She responded to me on Twitter. I sent her an email asking for an interview. Still haven't got a response from that. She didn't articulate any of her thoughts on this. And I do, I do find that <laughs> it's worthy of comment that we, we, we have an opportunity for a, one of the few 
tangible solutions that review offered and we're not exactly seeing much follow through on it despite this being a huge opening for football yeah well i'll I'll come on to your experiences at at chelsea on sunday migs i just want to you know i said right at the start of the show paul that i found it really depressing the atmosphere around that chelsea newcastle game again as an observer yourself what 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 were your feelings about it well, it was an incredible confluence of events that Chelsea should be playing Newcastle on that day. And something really struck me, Mike, about the build-up to that game. The previous day, as we know, Roman Abramovich had been disqualified as a director at Chelsea on the back of the sanctions imposed by the UK government. But on that same day, 24 hours before the game, 81 men were executed in Saudi Arabia for various so-called crimes. And the reason that struck me so hard was that if Saudi Arabia cared what people thought about them, they wouldn't have done that the day before they played Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. They'd have delayed those awful executions. They'd have strung out the cases or whatever. And they're, they're so emboldened, really. They didn't care about the PR of it. They just went and did it anyway. And, and this shows that as soon as you validate a sovereign wealth fund, a state buyout of a, of a football club from a nation with a human rights record like that, they'll really rub your nose in it. There was, there, was, there, was, there was no attempt to conceal what happened in Saudi Arabia yesterday. And then the following day, a club that's 80% owned by the Saudi government trots onto the pitch at Stamford Bridge to play a team whose owner has been disqualified and sanctioned. That is an incredible convergence of events. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but it's remarkable to me that there are so many people willing to try and tell you that that's all irrelevant and you shouldn't be talking about it. And why don't you just stick to football? And what's this got to do with football? Well, it's got a hell of a lot to do with football because Chelsea, for example, have won 21 trophies and are one of the powerhouses of the European game precisely because Roman Abramovich was able to bring the wealth that he brought to the club over 20 years and build it up in the transfer market and with facilities and infrastructure. So these issues cannot be divorced despite the attempts of many people in this country uh, to do so yesterday. You were there, Migs. What was the mood like? Strange, I have to say. There was, it was mostly quite subdued. Now, I suppose, I mean, I was talking about this to, to John Murray yesterday, the BBC commentator, and we were discussing whether some of this is all, a subdued atmosphere like that. Do you imagine it because it's what you expect and also because it was a relatively early kickoff or two o'clock rather than four o'clock on a Sunday or half four and you kind of have a certain image for it. But I think as the day wore on, you, could, you definitely could sense, I think, a slight tension in the air and for me that tension actually mostly transmitted or was mostly noticeable between uh, Chelsea fans because I think there was a, and from talking to friends that are Chelsea fans since and some of the guys involved in the likes of the supporters trust and other bodies like that or other fan groups like that there basically was a concern that people would start singing about Ramovich. now I, the one thing I will say for all the the criticism that got and they, they even Tuka pointed it out around the Burnley game I think it was the Chelsea fans credit yesterday that while there were a few smatterings or individuals trying to get a Brown chance going they were mostly suppressed 
because I have to say I I expected a much kind of more belligerent scene of defiance, especially given some of the online reaction to to criticism of Abramovich or even discussion of the sanctions, as well as let's be fair, the singing of away fans. But yeah, it was to it was to the the home support's credit that that didn't really happen, and but it did play into kind of maybe an uneasy day that was really only kind of started to maybe feel like a more normal football match, actually probably after the initial Havertz and, uh, and Byrne incident, because that one was kind of, because of suddenly uh, what was perceived as a football injustice, it kind of brought people back. But of course, uh, as Paul has spoken about there, it wasn't a normal football occasion. And yeah, and, and, and he's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's something I keep coming back to myself. People talk, say, what's this got to do with football? It's got everything to do with football. What happens off the pitch informs what happens on it. As, as, as Paul has said, it, it, the, the takeover off the pitch and Abramovich buying it and why he bought it, it's created, made Chelsea a superpower. A similar takeover is probably going to do the same for Newcastle now. And for all the lionisation of, of Howe's coaching, and yeah, he, he, he is a good, good coach, there's no overlooking that. But equally, Newcastle are the only club in the history of the bottom half of the Premier League since 92 to have spent anywhere near 80 million in January. That's pretty influential, Be, and that's before that's before you get, of course, to the wider. I mean, as football journalists, we should be concerned with the role the football clubs have, their social importance, what they mean to people, their community value, which Tuchel spoke really well about after the game earlier. So even even from that perspective, that that's why all this matters as well, how they're used. How impressed have you been, Paul, by Thomas Tuchel? You know, as as Mix referred to there, he gave measured responses to the inevitable questions, and probably you know made a better fist of it, to be honest, than than Eddie Howe did. You know, he's in a difficult situation here. You know, he's making light of supposed travel problems, going to Lille this week. You know, threatening to to drive a seven seater bus. He's actually handling himself really well, hasn't he? Yeah, I think the most important thing about him is that he started to admit that there was a problem and that there was a shadow hanging over the club before Abramovich was sanctioned by the UK government. That that took some courage, really, because I remember people saying when he did that, well, that's the end of him. Abramovich will catch up with him at some point further down the line for that because he should have said nothing or should have stayed loyal, should have dodged the question. He didn't. He admitted the, the, the shadow of the uh, Russia's war on Ukraine was hanging over the club, as I said. And, you know, it, it would sound easy to people outside to, 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 to you know, it, it looks easy rather. You know, of course he did. Well, that's his moral obligation. Well, not necessarily. It is. Maybe it was. But he is employed by the club. He's paid pretty much directly by Roman Abramovich. So that took some moral fibre, if you like, to do that. And he's been consistent ever since. He just hasn't tried to pretend either that it's not his job to talk about it or that it doesn't affect the club. So it's difficult to imagine being in that situation. But I think on the whole, he's, he's, he's handled it really well, as you said. But, but, but even the, that whole situation, as you say, and Tuchel was in a bit of an invidious position, but as, as a lot of people point out, it's a position he accepted. Because I think this whole situation has just thrown another complication into this, which is how much we should actually be asking sports people about the choices they make. And of course, sport, it is basically just an extension of society. And I mean, there's, 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 there's very few companies' jobs which are in some way touched 
by something that someone could point to as problematic. And I think the general feeling has been with, with sports people. I mean, let's be fair. They, they've generally got a pass about who they work for. Even in the summer, me, me, Messi is probably a player who had more choices than anyone else in history. He could have gone anyone because he's, he's Messi. And he ultimately chose PSG. But he was generally given a pass for that because I suppose, you know, it's just seen as it's an element of real politics. It's the same sort of decision everyone has to make. And, and with sport, I suppose, it's a bit more amplified because... They they kind of they they basically just want to win and compete for the best trophies and there has to be a certain amount of tunnel vision necessary to compete at the top level. That's what elite sport warrants. But I think with managers, given that a manager by definition has to concern himself with ideas like the philosophy of a club, the identity of a club. Usually that just applies to football, but often it gets complicated by bigger issues like what's a, what a club is about. Be, and because of that, because of their they are they do become the very public face of clubs, it is fair game to ask them about what this really means. And of course that came up in Howe's press conference yesterday. Because ultimately they they become the face of these projects. Should we talk about football, chaps? <laughs> as, a, as a bit <laughs> of a blessed relief. Um, with, with, with Chelsea, you know, Lille, you know, goalless draw with Saint-Étienne on Friday you'd probably say that they were unlikely to overcome that two-goal deficit from the first leg. In its broadest sense, despite everything that's happened at that football club, do you think, Paul, that Chelsea are still capable of successfully defending the Champions League? In theory, I I, I don't see any real uh, reduction in their effectiveness. I don't see any kind of moral crisis on the pitch that's you know that's really affecting their performances they are they are now what they were two weeks ago pretty much and and again Tuchel has done quite a good job on on focusing their attention on the games you can bet your life that a lot of them are thinking about their futures beyond this summer and i don't just mean the three players are out of contract none of them know who's going to be the owner at the end of the season and what the owners kind of plans might be and how wealthy the club is going to be. And they'll be reading plenty of stories about this being the, you know, the end of the glory years for Chelsea. But uh, on the pitch, they are still the third best team in the country with a, a, with a squad of kind of immense depth. They still have some momentum. Uh, I don't see them winning the Champions League this year personally because I don't think they're as good as they were last year. But uh, at the moment, on the on the pitch, things are relatively stable. Mm. What about Manchester United, Migs? You know, Atletico Madrid are at Old Trafford on Tuesday. Ronaldo, you know, there are eight hundred and seven reasons to believe in him. You know, that unprecedented goal record. Is he the problem, or is he the solution? Well, he's both. Is almost he's, he's the solution to a problem he causes because. I think this is the same with Juventus. Because you, be, when Ronaldo's there, you can't really play a certain way. And, and at this point, it's not really down to to will with him. It's just, I suppose, what happens when you're 37 and he's more he's more limited in terms of his movement and his physical capacity. But the offset is, and I had been missing for the last few weeks, as I forget, that if he is provided with the right service, then that doesn't matter as much because Ronaldo will score. Now, I think there is a bigger debate to be had over if you have that, can you actually push your limits as a team? And I, I, I think that's highly debatable. But for the moment, I mean, what, what's, what's, I suppose what articulates this a lot or what kind of crystallises this issue 
and it's why the Champions League is so central to United's season, is that United are basically in this last 16 game because of Ronaldo's goals in the group stage. He's also a player who has had... <laughs> basically, Atletico Madrid have had a, a psychological complex over Cristiano Ronaldo for most of the last decade. He's been involved in <laughs> and a remarkably high proportion of the European exits before you even get to what he did to them in La Liga. So again, if Sunday's game, as, as Paul said, was an interesting confluence of political factors, Tuesday's game is actually an interesting confluence of pure football factors, most of those revolving around Ronaldo, which is where he is in the United team, how much longevity he's got in the game, his, his European legacy, and also his relationship with Atletico Madrid. Yeah. What do you make of, of the Marcus Rashford situation, Paul? You know, is it a case of almost arrested development here? He, he does seem to have been poorly coached and perhaps overplayed. You know, Ranić's basically saying, well, I think he said it makes no sense to put any energy into the debate about his future. That struck me as being pretty significant. Yes, it's it's. We've been talking about this for quite some time now, and 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 that fact alone tells you that there is a there is a problem. Probably on both sides. I mean, I think Rashford's problem in the team has been that he's been moved around too much. He's had a lot of injuries. He looks to me like someone who's taken to heart quite deeply Man United's poor form, their unreliability, their inconsistency. It seems to get to him. And he looks, or he has looked for quite large parts of this season, particularly like a like a disaffected player, a, an alienated player. And... Obviously, a lot of the analysis has, has picked up on his sort of lack of movement, lack of energy, lack of intensity. And obviously, we know what his character is like. He's a very committed, you know, admirable young footballer. But in his appearance, it, it, it looks like either he's sort of lost his way tactically, technically, or he doesn't feel very happy there. I mean, it can be as simple as that. You know, we look for complex um, explanations for things, but sometimes people just don't want to be there. They want to get away. And I wouldn't blame any Manchester United player most weeks for thinking, I'd quite like to get out of here because <laughs> um, because it's going nowhere fast. So it would be a huge shame for United to, to lose him and an, an admission of defeat, because if you can't get a local lad like that with his potential and turn him into a great Man United player. It goes against what Manchester United are. That's what they've done for generations. That's what they're there for. So if, if Rashford were to leave, it would be it would reflect very badly on the club. But it might do him some good. Maybe, maybe that's what he does need, a fresh start somewhere else. Mm. You mentioned that Atletico, Migs, you know, four La Liga wins on the bounce without really impressing... This strikes me as a as a the ideal situation for for Simeone to renew his reputation at Old Trafford. What do you think? Yeah, completely. Uh, and it's interesting because Simeone, from what was probably his the peak of his reputation around 2014-2017, when in a time when Atletico won their first title under him and got to two Champions League finals, it feels like it has wavered a lot since. I think some of that has been due to the football that he plays, which is certainly, say, closer to Jose Mourinho than it is to Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola. And also the Atletico have wavered a bit since. They've had some fallow seasons. Then they go and win the league, although it was a league, I suppose, when Barca and Madrid had dropped off. And then they've had this season where initially they had a huge drop-off, but are coming back. So maybe 
and I suppose that the nature of the club they are, there will be natural ebbs and flows because they're always kind of fighting the tide because they've got they're up against the two two much wealthier clubs. But maybe they're on a little bit of an upward curve now, and they're it's possible to come into the sort of form that's particularly dangerous for Manchester United. And yeah, like I mean, I have to say, I put this game very much at fifty fifty. Liverpool, meanwhile, Paul are at Arsenal on Wednesday in the Premier League. Arsenal have taken twenty eight points from thirty three. You know, they look to be cruising to fourth place at least. Is that a potential tripping point for for Liverpool? Do you think? Yes, it, it is. I think you know if you if you if you looked at the two teams. Brutally, you would say that Arsenal are on the way up and, as you said, have strung that impressive sequence of results together. But Liverpool would still be the boss on that pitch. So if Arsenal were to beat Liverpool, Arsenal's revival is even more impressive than it looks and, and, and Liverpool would have to have, you know, a slight off day or, or do something wrong. Uh, Liverpool are, are, are back to being a kind of winning machine. Everything they do comes off. They don't always win games impressively, but they, they've developed the knack of, of doing what they need to do to win games. And, and Klopp's changes as well during games is, are impressive. Of course, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously the Liverpool squad depth is much greater than it was last season and the season before. And I'd even go so far as to say that in many ways it's, it's stronger. It's a stronger squad than Manchester City's squad because he has a greater variety of weapon off the bench I think obviously the midfield's not as good as the Man City midfield but Klopp has has a serious amount of talent at his disposal now and he's and he seems to be completely in command of games so if Arsenal could beat them well you know Mikel Arteta really is really is um proving his proving his worth mm. I've been really struck Migs by Martin Odegaard I think he's been exceptional hasn't he yeah, um, Odegaard. It's it's inter- It's all the more astute and impressive a signing, given that there wasn't that much interest in him in the summer. Arsenal almost got him, kind of not quite under the radar, but um, they 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 basically they got him without much challenge. And now he's suddenly rising into one of the most impressive performers this season. I suppose maybe there's a little remaining element with him where, and he almost personifies Arsenal in this way, in that just as they need a big performance in a big game to almost prove that next step. So does he. But that isn't to take away from what has been supreme for him. And he's been absolutely influential. I mean, and what's also, and this isn't take away credit from um, Smith Rowe or Saka, who remains superb, but given the amount of focus that have been on them, Odegaard has suddenly has quietly become almost Arsenal's most influential player. Mm. Yeah, Paul, there's, there's been probably more heat than light generated by the debate about Mo Salah's new contract or whether he should be given one and getting getting the £400,000 a week he's supposedly asking for. You dealt with Sir Alex Ferguson. I suppose Arsene Wenger had a similar ability to actually detect the optimal time to either sell or discard a player. Do you actually see that type of instinct in Klopp? I do, and I also think he would work with the club on the financial aspect of it. So let's say, for example, they deny it, but say Mo Salah is asking for £400,000 a week. Klopp would not go to the board and say, you have to pay him that money. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. He would say, well, if you think that's too much, 
I would accept what you're saying. His judgment of when to let go would be, you know, probably impeccable. And I think that there's an important point about the acquisitions they made in the last couple of years, because when you saw that forward line of uh, Salah, Mane and Firmino, you thought, well, that's a, that's a golden trio. And if ever that breaks up, Liverpool are going to be in trouble. This is what we say to ourselves, you know, as soon as that forward line starts to disintegrate, well, Liverpool will sink back to fourth or fifth in the table. But what they've done is start to renew that already with uh, Diego Jota and Luis Diaz, who's, you know, I don't think he finishes as well as Mo Salah. He may do in time, but at the moment he doesn't finish all the chances he creates for himself. But my God, is he dangerous. So with Jota and Diaz already, they're moving the thing on. And Salah would be a, a, a huge loss to them because primarily for his finishing, is he's lethal. His numbers are extraordinary. But Klopp's skill and Liverpool's recruitment are so good that they, they, they would manage it. They're already managing it, in fact. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And this is possibly an unpopular view, but my, my long-term principle has been, or something I would I regularly argue, once a player gets past a certain age, and it's quite a young age, I'd say 24, 25, be prepared to sell them. Because, I mean, it, it, and because it comes down to fundamentals of sport. You can't be relying on any one individual indefinitely. There, there will come a point where you have to adjust. So, it's almost, so if there's any sort of complications, difficulties, it's better to react. And I would actually put, I mean, for all, <laughs> for all we criticise the events at the top of this, and for all their own history complications, the football operation has been run very well. And I remember a policy that worked so well for Juve in the 90s and up to the mid-2000s was, if they got the right offer for any player, they'd, they'd take the business. And look, they, 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 they sold Zidane in 2001, reshaped the forward line, and, it, and then suddenly started a new cycle where they won the league. Now, actually... <laughs> I think some of those titles have since been taken off them through Calciopoli but it's beside it's beside the football point similarly in the 90s when they got to those that sequence of um, of Champions League finals they, they changed the forward line every single year the first they won the Champions League with Viali Ravinelli and I think it was initially meant to be Baggio but of course he got injured and they eventually sold him on to Milan and Del Piero took his place then the next season they got to the final again lost against Dortmund they should really have won but Viali and Ravinelli were both in England. And then by 98, it was changed again. And, and that would be just, uh, that would be my principle. Although you're going to have to, I, 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 I actually, I, I argue the same thing for Spurs with Kane in the summer. There comes a point where you're going to have to adjust around a player. And it's better to try and adhere to the principles of what a football team is actually about, which is a team game. And I think that's what Klopp has done expertly, as, as, uh, as Paul referenced there. He's, he's, built a structure that as much as it feels like it can be dependent on the performance of individuals, it's not. There's, there's much more to it than that. And yes, the structure means that some of those individuals go to super levels, as you've seen with Salah, but there's, there's more to it than that. And it's why... Uh, also, I think, because I have to say, given, given what we're seeing in the world right now, some of the posturing by Salah's camp, if not necessarily Salah himself, or you have to presume this happens with his knowledge, it seems a little bit more distasteful like his agent kind of posting those laughing, laughing emojis the other day. It just feels a little bit wrong in the, uh, in, in the wider context. And within all that, when we're getting to a point where whatever you're offering isn't good enough, be prepared to walk away. A football goes on, a club goes on. Yeah, I suppose you know, to take that point a little further, 
we're in a time where actually the feel-good story actually feels better than normal almost. Christian Eriksen, assisted by Ivan Tony, he's going to keep Brentford in the Premier League, isn't he, Paul? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what um, what you can do when you add a player of, of, of craft and creativity to a relegation struggle because the conventional wisdom is what you need to do is, you know, add battlers and scrappers and yet you've... Brentford have dropped this tremendously elegant, you know, aristocratic European playmaker into the middle of their team, and it's making a difference. I still feel a bit nervous watching Christian Eriksen, I, I admit that, but on present evidence, he could just basically stand still in the number 10 position and just spray these lovely passes and set things up. He's certainly made a big difference to Brentford already. Mm-hmm. It had the feel of quite a significant weekend in, in the relegation area. Leeds, they had Patrick Bamford back, well, for the first half, Migs. Are they, do you think, responding to the increasing threat that they're under? It does feel like that. And, well, I, I would generally consider um, Bielsa a loss to the Premier League, I think just because what, what he was, the character he was, what he represented. It, it was a sadly a rational decision to get, to get rid because I think it was just one of those managerial regimes that, more than anything, it just run its course. And that, that happens. It just they come to the end of these cycles and it isn't necessarily a reflection on anyone involved. So, so they just needed a change in the way that happens. And I think Marsh, to his credit now, got a response um, yesterday or on Sunday. And I think it, it, could, it could well be enough to just keep leads up. Just give them that, that jolt and that bit of separation. Because what, it, it is feeling like this relegation battle is coming down to maybe... Between Everton and Newcastle, sorry, between Everton and Burnley, with maybe someone else to get sucked in. Leeds are looking very. Leeds are still around there, but now they have that bit more of a cushion. And the same applies to Brentford. I, I must say, I would consider Brentford safe now. Speaking of Everton, Paul, they're in in real trouble, aren't they? And I, you do feel for players on an individual basis. You know, Michael Keane not so long ago was an England central defender. Thirty million pound player, he can't. They almost can't pick him at the moment. Frank Lampard has got a job on, hasn't he? Yes. Twenty years ago, I don't want to get all old school, but the first thing a manager would have done walking into Everton was was to stop them conceding goals, make them hard to beat, do whatever it took to stop them leaking goals. I mean, the the opposite is now happening. They look. I mean, we could score against them at the moment. It, 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 it's particularly in the Tottenham game. It was mayhem at the back of their team. Uh, it wasn't much better at the weekend from from what I saw. So, it's a problem of of structural organisation, but also, as you said, Mike, um, it, you know, individuals just seemingly imploding. And Michael Keane's form is 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 alarming to behold. And and I, I could see why he just needs taking out of it. But if you're going to take him out of it, your senior centre back. You need a plan to, you know, to, you need cover for that. You need a, you need a new plan, and and Everton don't seem to have one. And the players at the front of the team are not really adding enough, but the players at the back of the team are just not giving them the defensive security they're going to need if they're not going to go down. Yeah. What about Watford, Migs? Few signs of resilience, but they've got nearly they've nearly got three weeks now before the next game, which is happens to be a trip to Liverpool. Was that was that win at Southampton 
you know, just a, a brief burst of spring. It still feels like they've got too much to do, although I suppose it was an encouragement that there was actually some progress in their attack. It's an interesting one the three weeks, though, actually, because and this is almost, it comes down to the sort of, I suppose, the compromises that are made at the bottom of the table. And even that ongoing debate, debates are actually going on for over about a decade now about exactly the style you need at the bottom. And, and something that, I suppose, almost became a culture war due to Bielsa, whether at a, at a club in the bottom half, you're better having kind of an overall philosophy and some sort of kind of attacking identity or whether you, where you're just playing hard to beat. Now, the benefit of being just hard to beat is that, I think as, as a lot of coaches would say, it's a lot easier and quicker to teach defensive organisation than it is to teach these integrated attacking structures. So while you can impose the latter quite quickly, the attacking structures take more time. And it suddenly leaves Hodgson in a strange situation, maybe, whereas maybe the, a three-week break would be better for, say, a Graham Potter than it would be for a Roy Hodgson. And suddenly there's this danger that they, they have this chance of momentum, and that momentum is... Uh, is maybe already going to be just snuffed out just through no fault of their own just because they've got such a long way to the game. With the next game, as you say, Liverpool. So suddenly they could be looking at a four-week wait for the next chance of at least a winnable fixture, shall we say. And maybe and sometimes that's what happens in the bottom, really. It's an issue because points are at such a premium. It becomes an issue of timing and misfortune to the schedule as much as maybe the failings of a manager or a team. Because I think there has been progress from Hodgson as you would always expect, he, he does always get some effect, but it, it would be a surprise if it's going to be enough. Yeah, I think you know there'll be a few more twists and turns before we're, we're through with this one. And also, you, know, you look at fixtures like Thursday's game at Goodison against Newcastle. That's got significance written all over it as well. You know, we've we've had to in this episode deal with some you know pretty big issues. I just like to end it if I could chaps with 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 a pretty personal question to all of us if football is a platform for so many of the ills of of modern society why do we keep coming back to it paul well because it's it's a lifelong love it's the world's greatest game it's it it becomes part of you after a while from childhood onwards if you if you really come to love it and and if you see your game, your lifelong love, effectively being taken away from you and repurposed as something else, something it was never meant to be, ripped out of communities, ripped away from tradition, ripped away from its whole essential meaning to become a plaything, a, a portfolio item, a, a tool of nation states, a way of removing money from one country to another, a billboard, a commercial exercise, when you see that happen to something you love, your instinct is, is to resist. And so that's what we're doing, inwardly or outwardly. We're all resisting what you might call the, the, the theft of, of the game or certainly the hijacking of the game. And the more people do resist publicly, not just internally, the quicker we'll get back to a, 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 a game that, that belongs to the people and not the plutocrats. Do you identify with that mix? Yeah, completely. And in fact, for all that I found Sunday quite a disturbing occasion for what it said about where football is and how it will be viewed within its history, 
the it still had a moment that actually reminded me of exactly what you're talking about. In fact, I have to say, it was your email when I saw the question at the bottom, which gave me my uh, my intro and my outro for my article yesterday. <laughs> we keep coming, <laughs> we, we we keep coming back because a the the simple beauty and reaction to moments like what Havertz did, a great touch that gets you off your feet. It's just exciting to watch. And MB, it's the effect on people that suddenly in that moment, a lot of worries are forgotten. People have a kind of people who feel like, like Tuchel spoke beautifully about it after the game. Where he said, it's, you know, it's, it's joy, it's relief, it's, and even, it's even anger. Football makes you feel alive. And that is precisely why it should be protected because it has a, yeah, it's, it's too important to be touched by these more important real-world concerns. Yeah. Like, you know, innocence is, is an increasingly rare commodity in football these days. But I was scrolling through social media this weekend, which, to be honest, wasn't a great or wasn't a nice task. But I noticed a couple of posts in which parents took their children to a match for the first time. You, know, you could see in the photographs the sense of wonder in the kids' eyes and you can sense lifelong attachments, what you talk about there, Paul, being formed. Now, that, dear listener, is, is what the game can be about and it's such a shame that's so easy to forget. In the meantime, I'd just like to thank Paul and Miguel for keeping the faith and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.